Well, welcome everybody. My name is Kyle. You might need that reminder. So I actually go here. Um, one of the pastors. It's good to be back. Last week I was preaching in a country in the Balkans, and uh, it's not home. It's not here. I missed you guys. So uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, two weeks ago, I was in Italy. Last week I was in a country in the Balkans, uh, visiting some friends of ours, Chase and Michelle, and they say hi. Um, and happy 4th of July weekend. So uh, looking at the front row, it looks like it's a 4th of July weekend. I know this is national like youth pastor preaching Sunday. Sorry to disappoint, but you get me. Josh got to preach like a, a month ago, so I get to preach. Actually, this at the 9 a.m. service, this is the only time I've ever preached here and it actually get videoed out to Chester Park and Superior. So that may not ever happen again. I don't know. Uh, Pastor Derek and Rachel moved up uh, last week and he's going to be starting this week over in Superior and then Pastor Dean is on vacation and so uh, I get National Youth Pastor Sunday. So um, we are going to look at Acts chapter 16 of the gospel going to Europe or more specifically Macedonia for the first time, and I got to tell you, it was surreal to, on Wednesday morning, fly out of Macedonia to come back here. So Liz and I got back late Wednesday night. Our, our bags got back yesterday. So uh, thus is, this is flying, isn't it? Would you guys pray with me as we ask God to speak? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word right now. Would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak God, as we read the stories of three converts, uh, would you maybe even produce a convert here today? Would you awaken faith in all of us? Maybe someone for the first time. Maybe someone for the 1,000th time. Would you open our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we're in the midst of a sermon series going through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in Acts 16 at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And I have pizza with a pastor. We touch on it in some way. Now, every week when we send you out, we don't dismiss you, but we send you to do what? Declare, display, and delight in the gospel, right? That was like a B-plus effort. So... I would say 9 a.m. was C minus, so way to go. I like you better. <laughs> now, we send you to declare the gospel, to display the gospel, and to de delight in the gospel, but have you ever wondered where we got that from? We talk about, as a church, gospel balance, that the, the gospel is a truth to believe and to proclaim. It is also a kingdom that we bring our lives under, a different reign and rule that we follow, God's rule and reign, meaning it produces a different kind of life among his people. And then it's also a relationship with God, an experience with the triune God where the Spirit comes into our life and we get to know God. And that in, in, in a lot of ways, it's all three of those things. The gospel produces a, a transformed mind. It produces in us godly character that begins to resemble and look like Jesus. And it produces in us a, a transformed um, or a, an experience of, of knowing him. And a transformed life. Well, we actually get that in a lot of ways from the work that the gospel does in Acts chapter 16. 
As the gospel comes to Philippi, we're going to look at the story of three different converts that couldn't have been more different from one another and couldn't have come to Christ in different ways. And yet, the end result of this is a church that is incredibly beautiful and partners with the Apostle Paul the rest of his life in ministry. In fact, they and they alone were one who sent uh, a representative on their behalf when Paul was sitting in prison in Rome to meet his needs, to take care of him, and to let them know that, hey, we still, have, we still have your back. So, Acts chapter 16, would you open it up with me? It begins, now this is right on the heels of Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, and Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement, and they split in different ways, and this story kind of carries Paul and now Silas, his new partner in ministry, as they go back through the areas that they had been before. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observation the decisions Oh, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. If you remember from last week, the question that was on everybody's mind was, what does one need to do to be saved? Or more specifically, is believing in Jesus enough, or do we need to become culturally Jewish and observe all of the Old Testament law? See, that was the first raging theological debate in the early church was, do the Gentiles need to become culturally Jewish as well and submit themselves to things like circumcision and the rest of the law, or is Jesus alone sufficient for salvation? And last week, the conclusion was, it is Jesus alone who is sufficient for salvation, and the Gentiles do not need to become Jews. That's good news, isn't it? That Jesus and him alone, in fact, the Jews were saying, it's, it's what he has done for us that saved us, not our adherence to the law. We actually failed at that. So why would we put on them a yoke that we couldn't bear ourselves? And so Paul is going with this letter from the Jerusalem council back to all of the churches that he had started on his previous journey and giving them the good news that no, it is Jesus alone that saves us. And he gets to a town by the name of Lystra, where he had been in Acts chapter 14. And do you remember what happened to Paul when he preached the gospel at Lystra? He was stoned. Meaning, they were so enraged at the message that they threw rocks at him until they concluded, yep, he's dead now, we can go. And then after they left, he woke up and went about his business. Now, if you were Timothy, a young man from that town, how many of you would have been like, yep, I want to go with that guy? Probably not many, that there was, a, there was a, a cost to following Jesus and proclaiming the message of the gospel that Timothy would have seen very clearly, and yet, he was a believer, He had come to Christ because of the faithfulness of his mom and his grandma and the ministry of Paul, and he was well spoken of by the believers so that when Paul went through there, he said, hey, I'm going to take that guy with me. And actually, Timothy becomes one of the closest people to the Apostle Paul for the rest of his ministry. He becomes like a spiritual son to him. And that despite the cost that he saw of proclaiming the gospel and and following this guy in his following of Jesus, he said, I want to go. I'm in, and Timothy became one of his closest uh, confidants and his best problem solver. He would send him as if sending himself to these areas to help fix things. 
The story continues. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mystia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mystia, they went down to Troas. And, the vision, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Have you ever had really big and elaborate or even just simple but straightforward plans laid out of what you were going to do? Maybe how you were going to follow God, how you were going to serve him, and then every door was slammed in your face? You had this great elaborate plan and God said, no, it's not where I want you to go. It seems like Paul and his apostolic team are saying, okay, we'll go preach the gospel there, and they can't. They, let's go preach the gospel there, and they can't. Let's go up into Galatia, or let's go to Bithynia, and every time they try to make an attempt to go and serve the Lord in these places, it's like the door slams in their face. One of the things I've learned about walking with Jesus is that God often says no so that he can say yes to something else. So Paul lays out all of these plans. He seeks to obey the Lord. He seeks to preach the gospel. And yet all the places that he's trying to go, it's like a door is slammed in his face. And then all of a sudden, maybe when he's discouraged, maybe not, we don't know. They have a, he has a vision of someone from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so they conclude, okay, the gospel's going to go that direction. And so the gospel goes to the continent of Europe for the first time. They conclude and they go and they bring the gospel to Philippi. Have you ever been discouraged by God's no in your life? I know I have. But what I've come to find is that God's no often leads to a better yes. If we continue to walk by faith. I think this is true of individuals who are wanting to follow God. I think this is also true of churches that are seeking to follow the Lord. Uh, about a year ago, we got a letter from First Presbyterian Church saying, hey, we would like to give you our church building. Uh, if you don't know, it's a 50,000-square-foot church building that we met in about 15 years ago for a while that's in downtown Duluth right next to the new hospital. And we thought, well, that's a really intriguing possibility. And so we put together a team, and we said, okay, yeah, let's pursue this. Let's see what will happen. And we've done that. We actually did that and uh, did everything that they asked us to do and showed, actually, we probably could afford it, and we probably could do that. That seems like a great thing. Well, we also had lingering questions, like, what are we going to do with parking? Is downtown Duluth the best place to go right now? And so we were a little bit conflicted, but still walking with that. Now, over the last year, we've been asking you guys to pray. Is that what God would have for us? And we, more specifically, asked that God would be clear. Uh, this week, God was clear. We got a letter from the Presbytery, from First Presbyterian Church saying, we're not going to give it to you anymore. We're going to give it to somebody else. So, one of the things that we can learn from this story in Acts 16 is that when God says no, it means he has something else. And so I don't know what that is. If I'm honest, I'm actually a little bit disappointed. Uh, truth be told, I've been praying for that for about 15 years, and yet I was still unsettled in my mind whether or not that was the right way to go for us as a church. And I trust God. I do. I'm excited to see what he's going to do over the coming weeks and months and years and how he's going to lead our church family and what the yes actually is. And so maybe I'll plan on a vision tonight for Macedonia or something like that. Or, no, I kid. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that God, when he says no, he has a yes for something else, don't we? Okay, so that's all context getting to the, 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 the area of Philippi. The story picks up in verse 11. 
So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, a couple things to note here. The city of Philippi is noted as a Roman colony. About 100 years before, there was a big battle that was fought between Octavian and Mark Antony, and Octavian rose the victor. He became uh, Caesar Augustus, that you might have heard of in the Bible story, ushered in this long period of peace for the Roman Empire. Well, they disbanded the Roman army after that, and many of the soldiers, instead of going home to Rome, went to the city of Philippi. Uh, named after Philip of Macedonia, Alexander the Great's dad. You might have heard of him before, okay? Anyway, because of that, the city of Philippi became what was known as a Roman colony, meaning if you were a citizen of the city of Philippi, it was equal to or had all of the rights and the privileges of being a citizen of Rome. Being a citizen of Rome was a mark of identity, a mark of pride, a mark of, in many ways, privilege, as you were entitled to certain things that other people weren't entitled to. And so the city of Philippi is primarily a Gentile city, not a Jewish city, and and it's marked by being a colony of Rome. Now, isn't it interesting that later on when Paul writes a letter to the people of Philippi, he says, your citizenship is in heaven. Interesting, isn't it? He says to this colony that would have taken a lot of pride in being citizens of Rome, your actual identity, your primary loyalty is not as citizens of Rome, but rather as citizens of a different kingdom, citizens of heaven, meaning you are marked by, you are identified as being my people. You are under my rule and my reign, and, and the primary loyalty that exists in your heart is to me. Now, There's nothing wrong with being a citizen of Rome. In fact, Paul was a citizen of Rome. We'll see that play out in this particular story. But his primary allegiance, his primary citizenship was in heaven. Isn't it interesting then that it's also the 4th of July weekend, isn't it? There is nothing wrong with being an American citizen. I am one. But my primary loyalty, my primary identity is not as an American. It's as a Christian. My primary allegiance is to Jesus. And hopefully that leads on to being a good citizen here. In addition to that, if we know anything about the Apostle Paul's strategy when he goes to these different places, where is the first place that he usually goes to? The synagogue. He usually goes to the Jewish synagogue because why not start with the low-hanging fruit, right? People who are worshipers of God, people who are awaiting the Messiah, go on the Sabbath day and proclaim, Jesus is here. The one that the Old Testament promised would come has now come, and he is the Savior of the world. And usually he would preach a sermon very similar to the sermons preached in Acts chapter 2 by Peter, or Acts chapter 7 by Stephen, or Acts chapter 13 by him. In the synagogue of Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to. We proclaim him and salvation in his name, and often some of the Jews would respond and others would reject. But notice he doesn't do that at Philippi, which makes us conclude there probably wasn't a synagogue there. It was primarily a a, a Greek or a Roman, a a Gentile city, and yet he does know that there are going to be God-fearers that gather some way. So on the Sabbath day, when he normally went to the synagogue, he goes down to the river, a a place where he supposes there will be God-fearers there that will be praying and seeking the Lord. And our story picks up, um, verse 14, 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here you have Paul going to a women's Bible study, as it were, and proclaims to them, these God-fearers who hadn't become culturally Jewish or converted fully, but were, were aware of God, were aware of the Old Testament, said, Jesus is the one. He is the one. And we, we learn of the first convert, a woman by the name of Lydia, who, who we're told is, is from the city of Thyatira. That was in Asia Minor over in Turkey. So culturally, she's not Greek. She's Asian of descent. And she's a, a rich or wealthy businesswoman. She has a home in Thyatira, one in Philippi, and her household is in Philippi. And so she's well off. She's culturally different, but she responds. It says the Lord opened her mind or her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I would say Lydia has what I would call a truth encounter. She, she, she looks at what Paul is saying. She measures it with what she knows of the Old Testament. She's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. He's the one. And she says, if you've judged me faithful, and she is baptized, she becomes the first convert on the continent of Europe. A wealthy Asian businesswoman. Now the second convert couldn't be more different from her, and we read her story as well. Now, one, one, one other thing to say about Lydia. She says, if you've judged me faithful, would you use my house and my household as the basis of operation? Immediately upon believing in the Lord Jesus, everything in her life becomes fair game for God's kingdom. She says, use it as you see fit. I think that teaches us a lot about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That when we give our life to him, it is a free gift that we receive. We cannot buy, and yet when we receive it, everything in our life is at the disposal of God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? No one's making her do that. She's like, hey, come and use my house. And Paul and his associates do. Verse 16, as they were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Don't you love how honest the Bible is? Now, a little editorial insight here or then would have been like Paul moved with compassion because of this young woman who was tormented by a demon spoke and cast the demon out. No, it says Paul greatly annoyed. Now why would he have been annoyed? Why, why did he maybe not see her humanity in that particular moment? Notice that the demons always recognize Jesus and his ambassadors. There's no, nothing unclear from that. They know who they're dealing with. They're announcing these men are servants from the Most High God. Now, if you were in the city of Philippi and you had to choose a spokesperson who would let everybody know who you were when you were coming, it probably would not have been this girl. Right? The crazy girl who can tell people's fortunes because we know she's demon-possessed and not right in the head. So Paul, greatly annoyed, now she's been listening, she knows who they are, and she has this power encounter with the Holy Spirit, and she is set free. Now, what do we know about this girl? Well, we know that she's on the very bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder. She doesn't even own herself. We know that she's not even of sound mind, but that those who own her are using her as a cash cow in order to benefit. They don't see her humanity. They don't acknowledge her humanity. They simply use her for financial gain. She was a slave. 
Most likely she's a local and so she's of Greek descent. And yet, this is the next person that God chooses to be part of his church to represent him in the city of Philippi. So what happens? But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. That's heartbreaking on so many levels, isn't it? Rather than seeing this young girl who is now set free and of sound mind, all they can see is their opportunity to exploit her is gone. Their, their, their cash cow dries up. And so rather than setting her free or any of those things, they, they go after Paul and after Silas. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, not only were they beaten publicly, but they were humiliated. Their clothes were stripped off them, and then they were beaten. Probably not a good day for Paul and Silas, right? Then they're roughly put into the prison. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if you and I would have had a day like that, what would we have been doing in the prison? Probably a little grumbling. Maybe a psalm of lament would feel appropriate at that particular moment. God, where are you? We're trying to be faithful, and this is how it goes. We're trying to serve you, and this is where we... But what do we see Paul and Silas doing? Listen to this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So they're ministering to other people. They're praising God. They're praying. They're doing prison ministry from the inside. It's like you can't touch these people, right? And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, if we just took the logic from the first part of this story of like God opening and shutting doors, they'd have been like, door open! Awesome, this is our ticket out of here. Let's get out of here. But they don't. They don't seize this opportunity to escape. Rather, something else happens. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, why would he do that? We don't understand this, but they lived in an honor-shame culture. And for a jailer to have prisoners escape would have been a deep mark of shame and betrayal. In fact, his life would have been forfeit. And the only way to preserve any sense of honor or dignity for him or his family was to take his own life in payment or in response to that, to, to, to have his family escape the shame of letting the prisoners go. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Now if you had a day that Paul and Silas had, would you primarily be focused with other people's needs and longings and dangers? Or would you be focused on yourself? I would love to think that I would be focused on others. In fact, that would be a supernatural kind of life that only the Holy Spirit could produce. The reality is I may not have seen it. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we've got the rich Asian businesswoman who has a truth encounter and believes that Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament. We have a demon-possessed local slave girl who has a power encounter with the Holy Spirit and is set free. And now we have this jailer, blue-collar guy. Those who got the good-paying blue-collar jobs were probably ex-military, and so he's probably Roman in descent, former member of the military. My guess is he's probably a little rough around the edges. And now he comes to Christ not by a well-ordered Bible study, not by simply a, a power encounter with the living God, but because he sees people that he simply has no categories for. He sees the difference that the Spirit of God makes in the lives of his people so that the, in this moment of great need and devastation in their life, they are completely focused on other people. He falls at their feet after sensing their care for him, and he says, guys, I want what you have. I don't know exactly what it is, but I want what you have. And then what, what must I do to be saved to get this? It's a question that we often ask ourselves. What do I need to do to be a Christian? And their response to him is the same response to anyone else. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, Christianity is not about a list of things that you do to make yourself right with God. We can't do it to make ourselves right. It's about what Jesus has done for us and believing the sufficiency of that, that Jesus' life was lived in our place so that when we put our faith in him, his resume is credited to us. That Jesus' death is sufficient sacrifice, our payment made for our sins so that God fully upholds his justice while also releasing his mercy because Jesus pays our debts. And that Jesus' victorious resurrection is our great hope that we too will raise in victory and newness of life one day. It is all about what he has done. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it's the same message to you today. What must I do to be saved? You must believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this man does. And he brings him home. And, he's, and, he, and Paul and Silas share the gospel there. And his whole household is saved and baptized. And it is this beautiful picture. And the story ends. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate said, sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? We have certain rights and privileges as Roman citizens. You guys are in trouble. We're not going to go quietly, is what he says. No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came out and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So, what do we learn from this story? If you were to start a church... Would you pick a church of such diversity to start? 
Three different people, three different ethnicities, three different socioeconomic classes, three different walks of life. All meeting Jesus differently. One through a truth encounter, one through a power experience or power encounter, one through, I would call, a kingdom encounter. Having no categories for God's people and wanting what they have. And yet, this becomes one of the most healthy churches that we see in the pages of the New Testament. We need to experience in the gospel. Here's here's what I've come to find out. The way that you come to Christ is often what you think everybody else needs. Let me me explain that a little bit. Some of you in the room are rather heady. You're thinkers. You're very much... Uh, concerned with what is true and, and the mind and everything being coherent and making sense. And that's good. Because if the gospel is not true, it's not anything. It's not helpful. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you are still in your sins and, and, and your faith is futile. The Bible says that. If it's not true, if it's not rooted in history, then it's not anything. Just wishful thinking. And so maybe you came to Christ through what I would call a truth encounter. Maybe you picked up a book and realized, oh my goodness, the words of the scripture are actually true. They happened in human history. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And it's a historical, verifiable fact. And one of the things that you're drawn to about Christianity is its incredible coherence. It makes sense. It fits together. And maybe you're a little bit more bookish, and so you love studying theology and the Bible and how it all fits together. For you, truth is a big deal. And often then you think, well, if that's the way that I came to Christ, that's what everybody needs. And so you hand out copies of the case for Christ, or or you, you talk about you just need to read this book, or you just need to realize that it's true, or you just need to grasp this aspect of theology, and then everything will work out. And you realize not everybody's like you. And that's not the door that God uses to get into their life like he did yours. That doesn't make what happened to you invalid, but it does mean that God reaches different people in different ways. There are others of you that are feelers or experiencers. You went to this worship event. You cried out to God. You asked, God, are you real? Or God, do you actually love me? And you felt this overwhelming experience of God's love. You felt a near presence. You you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you often think, you know what, my friend just needs to experience that. You just got to cry out to God like this, or you just got to go to this worship service, or you just got to attend the Passion Conference, or you just got to do this, and then you'll get it. And maybe they do, and it's not the same for them. Or maybe you're just, you're a doer by nature. Like just brass tacks, like what does it mean? How does this impact things? And maybe you weren't even interested at all in spiritual things and the gospel, and then you met this group of people, and they were different. The way that they loved each other was just different. The way that they interacted with life and what they valued and what they didn't value, you came to be drawn to. You were attracted to, to the point where you said, I'm not sure I believe what you believe, but I want what you have. And, and, and through joining this community and seeing their way of life, you realize, wait a second, this is life. Now, which, which of those is the right way? Yes and amen. We're for all of them here, okay? I just want you to know Jesus. But here's the thing that I I found over the years is that I need to grow to appreciate all three. If you can think in terms of head, heart, and hands, 
head is biblical thinking, having my mind shaped and formed by the scriptures, knowing and believing the right things about God so that I honor him. Heart being the, the, the experience of God, the, the godly character that results in communing with and experiencing God. And hands, the, the life that's brought under the rule and the reign of King Jesus so that the way that I live my life is different and the people that I hang out with are different and the way that we love each other is different. That's a great picture of maturity. See, a church that values truth but not necessarily character formation or ministry skill can easily become the seminary church where, where maturity is seen by knowing the right answer, whether or not you're filled with pride or, or love. Hmm. See, knowing the right things about God without having a heart that is transformed by communing with God either leads us to a dead orthodoxy or pride. Thinking that we've got it all. Thinking that we're, the right, we're in the right just because we can spout out the right answer. Guys, in the New Testament, the Pharisees had memorized the scripture and they didn't see Jesus. They were the closest to getting it right, but their hearts were the furthest away. Or a church that values emotions and experience and transformation, but not truth, can often be all kinds of crazy can find yourself chasing one emotional high after another or becoming overly therapeutic and even sub-Christian or it's all about the experience but not about a life that actually is lived in light of communing with God. Or there's churches that value the kingdom and initiative and they're, they're alive, they seem, and active and they're doing things. They're living out the gospel together. They're living out the implications in word and in deed. They're, they're loving their neighbors and they're sharing the gospel and then you dig a little deeper and you realize, wait a second, all these people are burnt out, tired, and beneath the surface, they're, it's a bit of a facade. They're doing all of these things but they forgot about being with the one who transforms. Now I know that each of those things is maybe a caricature, but what I want you to see is that spiritual maturity is the praxis, is the interplay of all of those things, not just individually, but corporately as a church. We need to value all of those things. We need to declare the truth with our mouths and understand with our head. We need to display the new life in Christ, living out God's kingdom here in the here and now, not perfectly, but in a way that gives a true glimpse of the future kingdom. And we need to delight in and experience the power of communion with God through through the Spirit, so that we actually enjoy and we, we're, we're buying what we're selling. And all of those things move us toward maturity, both individually and corporately. So I just want to close with two things. Individually, what are you naturally good at? What's, what's just kind of the thing you vibe with? And what's the area that you need to grow in? Maybe you're a heady person, you love reading books, but feelings, those are scary. Experiences, you're naturally pretty skeptical of them. Or maybe you're a doer, always wanting to keep it practical, but you can't remember the last time you read a book. Maybe you would, or, or maybe you're a feeler, an experiencer, and it feels like you just go a bunch of highs and lows, like mountaintops and valleys. The reality is you need all of those things to grow 
in your faith. So which area are you strong in and which area might God be inviting you to grow in this year? I think the same thing for us as a church. Now, individually, it's not that you become a different person. God has given us different temperaments and strengths and weaknesses, and that is a good thing. If you're a thinker, be a thinker, but don't hate feelers. If you're a doer, be a doer, but also think a little bit, right? And here's the cool part. The people that frustrate us are often the ones we need the most, because they're helping us to experience a different part of who God is and what it means to live under his rule and his reign. Now, I said corporately, we also have to just take stock from time to time. Which ones are we really good at as a church, and maybe where do we need to grow? See, I think we can default as a church into being a little too heady. I mean, come on, we're preaching through every book of the Bible and trying to connect it to Jesus. We love theology around here. We like getting it right. We have Bible studies and book clubs, and they're all great things. But Rock Hill, we need to not just live in our heads. We need to not just pursue God as the God of ideas and concepts and marvel at how they fit together perfectly. We do need to do that, but we need to experience his presence We need to be open to what he might be saying to us. We need to actually pray to him like he's there listening and he might want to answer and show his supernatural power. We also need to do and step out and find, maybe rediscover again that the way to find life is to pour our lives out. See, God has not created us to to just live for ourselves. He's created us to live for him and other people, and in that we find life. Many of you know that, and you serve like crazy because you know this is where life is found. Some of you have yet to discover that. And the missing piece in your maturity is to actually step out and do and see the power of God show up in your life. Step out beyond what you're naturally able to do so that God can show up And it's so evident that it's him. See, the gospel of Jesus changes everything. And as a church, we want to declare and believe and treasure the truth of the gospel and marvel at how it fits together. We want to display the impact of the gospel in our lives individually and corporately so that our friends are like, I'm not sure I believe what you believe, but I'm intrigued because I've never seen people love each other like that or dream like that. And then we need to experience communion with God, the power of God, daily as we open up his word and we spend time with him. And corporately when we gather together, giving space for him to show up, to speak to us, to encourage us, to convict us of sin. And so as a church, we're going to try to do that over the coming weeks and months, is just create a little bit more space in our service for, for us to let God respond for us to confess our sin, for us to maybe pray for people to be healed, for us to maybe ask God what he's wanting to do in our life to lead and guide us clearly so that we're not just coming here and just consuming and putting our minds on autopilot, but we're experiencing him and we're giving room for him to to speak to us so that we might know more of him and walk with him day in and day out. I promise you we won't get that weird, maybe a little bit, but we won't get that weird. Because we're to do things orderly, but we do want to know him. Head, heart, hands, declare, display, delight. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it shapes and forms us in big and small ways. 
God, I thank you that you have given us minds to understand complex truths and to see if, if things fit together. I thank you, God, that you've given us emotions to feel and to know and to experience ultimately you. And God, we thank you that you've given us gifts and abilities, skills, and things in our life to steward. May we live in such a way that displays the beauty of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, would you speak to all of us, even now, about where we might need to grow this year, about where we might need to know more of you. God, we know that we're going to spend the rest of our life figuring out what you did when you saved us. We know that ultimately it doesn't depend upon our performance, but rather on your finished work, and so we delight in that reality. We rest in it as we seek to know you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.